Yeah, I, I just turned it up two notches. Let me just do the whole range real quick. Okay. okay. I'm monotone and I'm just saying hi to Paul. Now I'm ecstatic. Hey, Paul, how you doing? That's too hot. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. The well, in- hello, Matthew. The internal medicine. Hello. <laughs> Never gets less creepy. <laughs> the- <laughs> You're not in my house, That's what I are try. you? <laughs> <laughs> not tonight. The- this is the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham and Dr. Paul hello. and Dr. Paul Williams. Stuart forces me to say hello to him like six times an episode. <laughs> I'm going to start keeping track. I'm going to just dedicate an entire webpage just to tracking how often you say hello to Stuart. Yeah. Uh, Stuart, did you want to start us off here by uh, reading some listener right. feedback? Yeah, I'll, I'll read one. Just one this time, actually. Okay. So uh, we, we got this feedback from someone from Facebook. This is uh, uh, from one of our listeners. It says, hello there, guys. I am a family nurse practitioner student. Probably not your typical listener. And just wanted to say that I am slightly obsessed with your podcast. There aren't a lot of podcasts available for other non-MD primary care providers. And I suggest yours to everyone I know. There's an exclamation mark right there. <laughs> says, I, I am learning so much. And so am I here. Uh, it says, and more importantly, I am learning how much I don't know. Every episode, I make a list of all the apps and books and websites to learn more about and decide that that what I want to do is to go to all the conferences, learn all the things so that I could be excellent. There's a lot of caps in there at providing care. Anyways, it, it, this, this feedback just basically says that they're really appreciative, appreciative of what we do here. And, and we're very appreciative of that feedback. It really um, gives us some insight into our listener base and really who's listening. And we, we like the idea. Uh, you, you had mentioned here in this feedback that you wanted to see an episode about the multidisciplinary team working with NPs, PAs, and kind of the, the, the full gamut. And we agree. We'd like to see an episode like that as well. And we would like to brainstorm that and see where we can go from there. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I fully support us, us doing that topic. So that is something that uh, it will, I, I imagine it will be sometime this year in 2017 that we'll get that done. Uh, now that I'm saying it on air, it pretty much forces us to get it done. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Well, this episode that we're, we're doing tonight is another collaboration with ACE, which is the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, and we asked them, this, is, this was a highly requested topic from listeners. People wanted us to do an episode on just kind of diabetes management and primary care. We decided to focus it a little bit on the newer agents for type 2 diabetes, and specifically we talk a little bit about on this one about the evidence for cardiovascular risk reduction and where, that's, where we think that might be headed. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Jonathan D. Leffert. He is the current president of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists for 2017 to 2018. He completed his internal medicine residency and endocrinology fellowship at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. He is board certified in internal medicine and endocrinology and is a fellow of the American College of Physicians, the American College of Endocrinology, and has also received certification in endocrine 
uh, the endocrine certification in neck ultrasound. He's been in private practice in Dallas since 1991 and is currently the managing partner of the North Texas Endocrine Center. And we had him on the show to talk about this topic of diabetes, which he has lots of experience. He's been in practice for a long time and he had a lot to, to teach us about. I think you'll find it very helpful. There's a lot of just bread and butter medicine here and clinical pearls, especially about these new agents, which you may or may not have had a chance to use. So a spoonful of insulin helps the sugar go down. <laughs> just saying. Okay. Just saying. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This well, hello, Matthew. Hello, Stuart. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Hello. And Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And we're, we're still doing the middle name thing. I just like our middle name so much, Paul, that I, I can't get away, with, away from it. Fantastic. And we have with us tonight, we're excited to introduce Dr. Jonathan Leffert from ACE. Hi, Dr. Leffert. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time out of your night to come on the phone with us. This is most people's favorite thing to do, if I, uh, I'm guessing anyway. So we like to start off by asking, if you, were, if you had to give a one-liner about yourself, kind of the way that you would do in, on the hospital wards, what would that sound like? So I'm a 59-year-old endocrinologist, husband, father of two girls who likes to fly fish and enjoys reading about history and political science. Well, you're, you're saying history. I have to ask, any favorite books, anything that you can recommend for the audience from, from that genre? Well, I, I really like a broad range of history, but particularly like American history and, and, and particularly the, the, uh, the topic of the presidents. So I have a number of the presidents' uh, biographies um, and I've read, you know, many of them, the ones about uh, Lyndon Johnson and Gerald Ford, Dwight Eisenhower, George Bush's. There, you know, every president has had multiple biographies, biographies written about them. And so I really enjoy that. And then, of course, you know, I live in Dallas, so always been very interested with uh, Kennedy and the Kennedy assassination and have read several of the books around that that event. That's always been an interest of mine as well. Paul or Stuart, any burning questions here? I'm going to leave it to Paul and then I'll jump in. Uh, it's, it's a related note and remains my favorite question. Is there of the books that, that you have as favorites, are there any that you feel that every physician should read? I've also, I've also read a lot of the history of medicine and, and have been always fascinated with those areas and, and like those types of books, but I don't have anything that sort of that, you know, comes to mind as something that every physician should read. I think that's something that every physician should figure out for themselves, actually. <laughs> so just read our book, doctors. <laughs> <laughs> how about a book, how about one book you've read recently that, that you would recommend to the audience? It doesn't have to be for physicians specifically. I read a book about, um, it's, it's called Starting With Why. And the book basically is, it goes into the issues of why somebody, uh, why an organization does things and how they decide what they're going to do going forward. And I'm very interested in that this year as the president of ACE and trying to do my best to figure out, you know, the, the important aspects and strategic direction 
that ACE will go in in the this year and in the future. And so always trying to figure out the why of the question, meaning why does, as in our, in our situation, why does ACE exist? Why does organization exist? Mm-hmm. What, what is it that they bring to the membership and to the public that's so important? I would recommend the book because it, it really helps leadership, but I think it's also good for people who are just thinking about you know, what they're doing in an organization to figure out, well, you know, why am I in this organization? What makes it right for me? Or for instance, why am I listening to this podcast? There's usually just a couple of things that are most important for people in this area. So Dr. Leffert, what's the best advice that then that you would give to a, a medical educator who's helping to bring up this next generation of physicians? I, I can talk to a, to a medical educator in one way, but actually I wanted to, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll give you a piece of advice that the chief of medicine at my, uh, my residency institution said to me, and he was one of the giants of, of a previous era, era named Don Selden, still living at 96 years old. And basically he said to, to me and everyone else who went through the program, he was the chief of medicine at UT Southwestern in Parkland for close to 40 years. He said, listen to the patient. They will tell you the answer to the medical problem that you're deal- that they're dealing with. Right. And I think that's a very good piece of advice. Always listen to the patient as you're going through that. And I think as educators, you know, you, you have to listen to your students mm-hmm. and, to the, and to the others who are trying to learn from you and make sure that, they, that you're giving them what they really need. Well, I, I want to move on to the main topic here, and I think it kind of ties into what you were saying there about listening to the patient, because our case, uh, what wouldn't you know, it's from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. This is a real case where I've changed the, the demographic information and some of the things about the patient, but this was a, a 49-year-old male that I saw, high blood pressure, BMI was 29, he had high cholesterol, family history of premature heart disease. His dad had a heart attack around the age of 45, and he had diabetes, which had been diagnosed uh, about a year or two ago, uh, but without any known complications. He was a, He's a truck driver, and he'd been well-controlled on, ins, on metformin. He was taking 1,000 milligrams twice daily. His A1Cs had been running in the low sixes, but over the past year, he gained some weight, about 20 pounds, and now his A1C on pre, preclinic labs was 9%, and he is having symptoms. He has polyuria. He has polydipsia, but because he's a truck driver, he tells me, listen, doc, I'm not taking insulin. That will cause me to lose my job, and I'm not willing to lose my job, so you need to figure something else out to treat me. So this is kind of the case we're starting with, and I guess to start at the very beginning here, what would you set, you know, what should this, his A1C goal be? And then we can kind of start to get into what sort of therapy we're going to offer him. So I would say that his A1C goal should certainly be, you know, less than uh, seven, certainly close to 6.5 because, you know, he's a relatively young man and he has hopefully a long life ahead of him a lot of potential for complications and certainly a lot of concern about, you know, cardiovascular disease. But I think that, you know, you would want to be aggressive in this gentleman. And and at this point, 
he's been on, you know, only metformin. Of course, I think you're, I think one of the points you brought up in your case was the fact that he had gained a lot of weight, but also that he had polyuria, polydipsia, and that he had only had at least known diabetes for a, approximately a couple of years. So it does beg the question of whether or not he has a, a component of insulin deficiency. And even though he is a truck driver, and I understand the issues of, of truck drivers and insulin, we've had this uh, in endocrinology having to deal with this for years and years, I would be concerned that he may have some degree of insulin deficiency as well as what we would classically think of as insulin resistance. For the patient that I based this off of, we actually did test him for the, uh, we did test him and he did not have insulin deficiency. He didn't have the antibodies. And, and can you review which, which testing you would recommend if you're consider this is the latent autoimmune diabetes of aging, yeah. a LADA so-called? Sure. It's really an autoimmune disease sort of, you know, in line with type one diabetes, but you would get the GAD antibodies, the glutamic acid decarboxylase antibodies, because these are antibodies that are, that are present throughout life and would be, would be positive in many people with type one diabetes. Okay. That would be the most specific one. You could also get islet cell antibodies or insulin autoantibodies, but the GAD antibody is the most sensitive and specific antibody that you, you could get for in this setting. I, I did just want to get back to the A1C goals for a second because this comes up a lot in the teaching clinic where I think it's because maybe different people have different styles and, and certainly different professional organizations have different targets. But let's say this, this patient, this 49-year-old guy, let's say he had macrovascular complications, either a heart attack or a stroke in the past. What... Do you, do you automatically does that automatically buy him an A1C of seven point five percent or less? So I think you're referring to the Accord trials, which showed that with patients that had lower A1Cs, that they had concerns for uh, increased risk of cardiovascular disease with those lower A1Cs. But I think you have to really be careful about looking at all the information, particularly in relationship to the fact the guy's only 49 years old and he's going to have diabetes for a long time. He might also have microvascular complications as well. And we were clear that the lower the A1C, the less likely to get microvascular complications. So mm -hmm. I think you have to balance all of these issues. And of course, always balance the issue of hypoglycemia in there right. as well. So I think it's, it's a, it's, a, it's a complicated question. I think it needs to be individualized for each patient, but I would be aggressive with this man. I think he has, I think he has a lot of downside risk in, or in, terms, of his, uh, in terms of the likelihood of long-term complications of, of many types. Okay. Right. Yeah. I, I've, I've always uh, approached it to talk with or to, to consider how, how much life expectancy is left. And so if someone has... 10 plus years of life expectancy left, I, I, at least the way that I cognitively think about it is I still want to prevent the progression of his cardiovascular disease. That's the way that I approach it. Now, if someone has instead uh, increased risk for hypoglycemia, then I'm going to have to liberalize his goal. Is that an inappropriate way to approach it? I completely agree with you. The closer a person gets to older ages, mm -hmm. then the, the more liberal the goal should be. 
for right. the obvious reasons that, you know, you're not as worried about the issues of microvascular complications and maybe even macrovascular complications if you're talking about people in their in their 70s or maybe 80s or even 90s. So I oftentimes see, you know, A1Cs in patients that are, you know, 85 to 95 years old in the, you know, 6 to 7 range and these people are having some hypoglycemia. You're going to hurt them more with hypoglycemia than you are with, you know, an A1C of 7 or above. Let's face it, you know, when you get to be in that age group, it's it's you're just happy to be there every single day. <laughs> The other thing that Hippocrates said to us, do no harm. Right. You certainly don't want to make somebody worse by making them hypoglycemic. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that, that I tend to talk about, I probably over talk a little bit too much about this in the, in the teaching clinic, is the association between the, the degree of iron deficiency anemia and the effect on A1C. So for someone who has, let's say, a new onset iron deficiency anemia, that can, that can potentially affect the A1C. Is this, is, this, is this born out in the literature at all? Well, I can't, I can't quote the literature on this exactly, but what I can tell you is, is it only makes sense because the hemoglobin A1C is a hemoglobin molecule which is glycated and therefore you're you're dependent upon the hemoglobin being an adequate amount in order to um, be a reflective of someone's uh, glucose. So if you're concerned about either hemolysis, um, iron deficiency, someone who had just received transfusion of blood from another individual for, as a result of you know some sort of either surgery or accident or, or what have you, you always have to be careful about using the A1C as your, as your way to uh, assess their glycemic control. There are other ways to assess glycemic control through some long-term um, measurements. It's not quite as long-term as an A1C, but a fructosamine will give you, you know, a, another estimate of someone's glycemic control over a period of time if you're, if you're not able to use the A1C. So don't let the A1C fool you in patients who have blood sugars that are 3-400 and A1C of 6.5. You should really investigate that more fully. Maybe tells you that that person has some degree of, you know, hematologic abnormality whether it be as as we talked about iron deficiency or something else. Can I shift gears actually a little bit to treatment and sort of go back to our patient? I feel like during my training, which was really not all that long ago, it was, you start with, you know, lifestyle changes were the bedrock and then metformin, then sulfonylurea and then insulin and then done. Like that was, and I feel like our armamentarium kind of exploded in the past, you know, five, 10 years, maybe. So I guess the first question I might ask is, you know, this patient's on metformin. He's not really interested in injectables right now. Are sulfonylurea still on the table or um, are they, is there any real utility in, in starting those as second line agents or should we be thinking about something else? Uh, I think in this man, I, for one, it's not injectables, it's insulin. Okay. He can take an injectable. He just can't take insulin based upon being a truck driver. So in this man, you could look at, you know, a GLP-1 receptor agonist as well, because he has for several reasons. One is he has uh, A1C, which is above goal. Two, he's gained weight. Three, and as you know, a, um, GLP-1 receptor agonists have a, have a benefit in terms of weight loss as well as uh, glycemic control. 
And then, and then the other thing is, is that you could use something other than a GLP-1 receptor agonist. You could go to a GL, an SGLT-2 inhibitor in this man, and I would probably go there first because of, you know, the recent information and data about the related to the EMPA-REG trial, which showed decreased cardiovascular risk, risk associated with empagliflozin. Now, you, there is also some data with liraglutide, which is a GLP-1 receptor agonist, um, in terms of decreasing uh, cardiovascular risk as well. So I, I always think patients are very interested in losing weight. That's a big deal about, uh, and this guy is certainly overweight with his uh, BMI, I think you said, was uh, 29. So I think that uh, it would be a good thing to consider at least a a you know a, either a once a, a once a day or maybe even once a week a GLP one receptor agonist. We just kind of blew through the lifestyle changes, but the 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 number that I'd like to give you have you give us an estimate for is if someone is actually if they're doing a horrible job with lifestyle. Let's say this guy's a truck driver. He's eating fast food. He's sitting for seven to ten hours a day. Uh, or maybe more, and now all of a sudden he's going to change his lifestyle. He's going to be more active somehow. He's going to eat better. That A1C at 9%, how low do you think that can drop with just you know changing his lifestyle if he follows everything we tell him? Well, assuming you don't change anything else, just his yes. lifestyle, no yes. medication, um, I think if you really, I think you could probably get you know, half to three quarters of a percent decrease with, with lifestyle changes. I don't, I think you would be hard pressed to get more than that in a reasonable time frame. But if he lost a lot of weight, you know, you might get more than that. But uh, I would say that most all patients, you know, if, when they, if you have a motivated patient, when they start their treatment with di- for diabetes, with a medication and a, uh, and lifestyle change, you know, you can get, I mean, the higher the blood sugar, the higher the A1C, the more benefit you get from whatever intervention you, you start with. And so, but, but I think diet maybe a half to three quarters of a percent would be my uh, 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 estimation. I don't have the literature in my head to tell you exactly if that's correct or not. I would say that diet and lifestyle modification for a truck driver is probably going to be pretty difficult. Though. Yeah. Yes. I, I was I was just, you know, hypothetically, if he could turn it around <laughs> lifestyle. <laughs> so to speak, that? no pun intended. <laughs> right, exactly. Turn turn the truck around, go back uh, home, <laughs> do some exercise. We I, I think we should swing through the agents and I always find this helpful, Dr. Leffert, when when I'm starting an agent in clinic, I'm I'm very much less likely to start it if I've A never done it before. Or B, if I've never like heard someone counsel a patient about that, because I, I like to know, so let's say you started someone on an SGLT2 inhibitor like empagliflozin, what sort of things are you going to tell the patient? What cautions are you going to give them? Are you going to adjust any other medications? Can you kind of go through that so that our listeners know? Because I, I imagine some of our listeners have not used these agents yet. So uh, that's an excellent question. So I think there's a couple of things that you would start, first, you want to know what the uh, kidney function is. You want to make sure that the um, GFR, the creatinine clearance, is, is greater than 60 in someone who's taking a SGLT2. 
So you want to do some things yourself to be sure. And then if, if the patient's on a sulfonylurea and metformin, you're probably going to want to stop the sulfonylurea because you're going to get significant glycemic improvement with the SGLT2. And so you want to be careful about that. If they're not, I like in this gentleman, I think what you would also want to caution him about is issues of increased uh, potential for dehydration. So making sure he drinks plenty of water, tell him that he's going to go to the bathroom possibly more often, which may be a problem if he's a truck driver with long haul. <laughs> right. You'd also, you'd, also want to, um, you'd also want to talk to him uh, about the possibility that it may lower his blood pressure. So if he's on blood pressure medications and his blood pressure is tightly controlled, I've had some patients who've become dizzy and, and uh, had difficulties with their blood pressure getting too low as a result of putting somebody on an SGLT2 inhibitor. And then follow him closely um, after you start him. Initially, you'd want to check you know, certainly within the first four to six weeks, maybe, you know, some kidney function, make sure that the guy has not become dehydrated, volume depleted. Um, One of the other big things that, that at least they say with these is that patients may have increased risk for UTIs or vulvovaginal uh, candida because there's increased sugar in the urine from, from the SGLT2. How prohibitive has that been for you in clinical practice? Is that if someone's had a history of UTIs, should we just kind of avoid those agents? It's not as much UTIs. It's really fungal infections. Okay. It's both men, it's both for men and women. At least what I see is fungal infections. Okay. And you know, patients do get them. I mean, they mm-hmm. they certainly do, and and they tell you about them, and and then you have to make a decision um, how you're going to proceed. Okay. Uh, oftentimes, you know, the patients are doing quite well. Uh, in other ways, and and they may willing they be may right. be willing to proceed after treatment. Um, but if you know if I see you know more than one or two fungal infections, I pretty much tell the patient we're probably going to have to you know discontinue this medication. One of the things that I caution my patients about is that if they have a large panis and they're not able to appropriately. Um, perform self-hygiene, and they continue to have uh, these candidal infections or yeast infections, I, I generally would stop the medication as well. But uh, yep. you know, it's, it's somewhat based on body habitus for the patients that I deal with. Um, of course, I, I do uh, pr- practice in an area where body habitus is unfortunately pretty loosely uh, defined as normal. <laughs> um, trying to be a little bit political here. <laughs> Dr. Leffert, I think also, I, I can't remember if you answered this already. Let's say this gentleman had been taking hydrochlorothiazide. Do you just go ahead and stop the diuretic when you start someone on an SGLT2 since it has that kind of diuretic effect? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, again, it would depend upon the reason. Okay. Assuming that the patient, you know, if the patient's blood pressure is not tightly controlled, I wouldn't necessarily stop okay. the diuretic right up front. If the patient is they're coming in with blood pressures 110, 115, you know, uh, systolic, I would probably be a little bit more concerned. Again, I think you just have to um, make sure that you tell the patient, you know, make sure you drink plenty of water and fluid. Right. You know, get get a lot of fluid, and um, and and most people are okay with that. 
And for those who don't know, the SGLT2 receptor, it's a co-transporter for both glucose and sodium. So if you shut off that transporter, not only does it lead to increased uh, glucosuria, but also natriuresis as well. So and I think it was it was the CANVAS trial, which I think recently came out, that showed maybe about a five millimeter uh, systolic reduction in blood pressure. And there were all kinds of other benefits that came along with it. This might be a good mm-hmm. time maybe to talk about the cardiovascular risk reduction um, that we're starting to see with these agents. Do you mind talking about the, some of the trials that have come out? Sure. So there's been a couple of trials um, with the SGLT2 in, inhibitors. There's the um, EMPA-REG trial, which was the very first trial which had a significant decrease in cardiovascular risk reduction in uh, in a anti-diabetic agent, and now is being uh, touted um, in in many places as a treatment for decreasing cardiovascular risk since diabetes has such an increased cardiovascular risk, usually two to fourfold associated with it. But that, so the EPIREG trial was sort of the start of that whole process of now showing that you could get cardiovascular risk reduction in patients who are high risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Now, the CANVAS trial was uh, uh, was with canagliflozin and, and showed a similar uh, effect, slightly different patient population uh, than the EMPA-REG trial, but, but also showed a, a similar effect. There were some concerns about increased risk of leg amputations, something right. that was not clearly um, understood, but is, is certainly in the data set. And I think we need to be aware of it as we move forward and, and wonder, you know, is this a you know what? What are the what are the SGLT2 class effects? Is it cardiovascular risk reduction? Well, it looks like there might be. What about this other concern about amputation? Is that is that related to to this whole class, or is this just with with Canna at this point? Um, I think that's still up in the air. I would also like to mention that the GLP1 receptor agonist liraglutide has also recently shown, well, about a year ago at uh, American Diabetes Association meetings, has also shown some decreased uh, cardiovascular risk as well. So um, we have at least three agents now that we can say have shown some decreased cardiovascular risk. And that's that's, that's an interesting phenomenon because, as you probably remember, many years ago, there was concerns about diabetic agents increasing cardiovascular risk. And at that time, about seven or eight years ago, the FDA put in a requirement that there needed to be non-inferiority in relationship to cardiovascular risk reduction. And the drugs uh, that have been subsequently looked at have all gone in that direction. But now we're actually looking at a, a superior effect of risk reduction in patients in, in, the, in, this, in some of these drugs. So a very interesting time, and as you mentioned, you know, sort of a revolution in diabetes uh, medications and a lot more choices, but also uh, makes it a lot more complicated to treat diabetes in 2017 than it was in 1991 when I started, and we had metformin, sulfonylureas, and regular and NPH insulin. Sir, and and I think... To get back to the Empereg, I think the big thing there. So all these all these cardiovascular endpoints they're looking at from the trials I looked at with 
liraglutide and empagliflozin, they had the composite endpoints, but with Empareg, when you separated out, the cardiovascular death and all-cause mortality were actually lower with the empagliflozin group, and that was, I think that's where this mortality benefit, but these were all patients who already had known cardiovascular disease, so I guess I guess what probably will happen in the future is this, these drugs be studied in patients without known cardiovascular disease to see if they also have a risk reduction there. That'll be a lot more difficult, as you know, because it's it's even difficult to see that in areas such as lipid lowering drugs. Mm. You know, the primary prevention studies in lipid lowering drugs have have never been as uh, robust in in showing the benefits that the secondary prevention trials have. So I think we're going to, I think just like those, we're going to have difficulty seeing that, I would, I would suspect. I guess one last comment that I had from my, my reading on these, on this cardiovascular risk reduction with these newer agents, it, it seems like because of the, the TZDs causing like weight gain and, and possibly increased risk heart failure and then some signal with the DPP-4 inhibitors like uh, citagliptin cause, and, and those drugs causing possible increased risk of heart failure. I think that's why they were making these new agents kind of show that they were yes. safe but then they ended up actually having this superior cardiovascular protection, which it seemed to me like might have been an un, unanticipated endpoint, and, mm-hmm. and they got really right. excited about it. Uh, absolutely. You're exactly right. That you, you, What you just stated is exactly the fact. There was, and, and it took you know, several different drugs before we got there. And Stuart, did you want to bring it back to the GLP-1s? Is that... Well, I, I, I actually have one more question about the SGLT2 inhibitors. And one of the concerns that we always talk about is the concern for euglycemic DKA. And I want to know if you could speak a little bit about that, about how real that, that concern is, what we can do to prevent that, and uh, what, ex- what, what you think the proposed mechanism of action is of that. So, Stuart, I think that's an excellent question. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer it in, in a great deal of detail for you. Let me just say this. I think that it's probably a real phenomenon. I think that the phenomenon seems to seems to occur in patients that may have more latent type 1 diabetes than in patients who have true type 2 diabetes. And it also seems to occur in patients where the insulin dosage was decreased significantly in order to accommodate for the SGLT2 I think Stuart had wanted to bring it back to the GLP ones. Did you have a? Well, I I just wanted to kind of switch back over the GLP ones and and to get more of a global understanding of what would make me choose a GLP one over an SGLT two or vice versa. So I think it again it depends on the individual patient. I'd say the GLP ones give you probably a little more glycemic lowering, so more hemoglobin A1C decrease, and also more weight loss, okay, than I think the SGLT2s do overall. GLP1s tend to be, you know, well-tolerated. Nausea is an a early uh, side effect, but, but oftentimes not there at all. And really only the, the only issue with the uh, GLP1s is, is really the injection and I think that most primary care physicians um, can do can teach an patient and feel comfortable with an with a fixed dose once a day or once a week uh, GLP one. So I like I like the GLP ones a lot 
in relationship particularly to the weight loss and the glycemic control aspects. Do you, how about the needle size with the GLP ones? And, and, and do you, is there a way that you have to put patients at ease with that if they, if they say they're afraid of needles or they're worried about the size of the needle? I know with the extended dose exenatide, which is branded as Bidorion, the needle is relatively large. It's a 25 gauge. That particular situation has been difficult for a lot of patients. I think they've recently changed their delivery system in, in the Bidurion, but I tend to use, you know, loraglutide most commonly. And it, the needle you use is, you know, basically the uh, needle that you would use it in, in a patient who takes insulin. It's a 29 or 31 gauge needle. It's a very small needle and it easily is inserted. And I, I, I mean, once we start that drug on patients, I rarely hear somebody say, I, I won't take it because of the injection issue, because they're getting such a nice effect on their, on their diabetes. And as I said, people who are type 2 diabetic, who are overweight, losing weight is a huge, huge, huge motivating factor for them. And we see that a lot in patients who take the liraglutide. Paul or Stuart, I, I do want to go back to the case, and I want to I want to start to wrap up here with a few last questions. But do, I want to give you guys the floor, Paul. And yeah, I guess I, I would ask where the DPP fours fit in with with this entire mix. What in what circumstances would you consider adding that on as therapy? So in this gentleman who has a A one C of nine, I don't think you're going to get to goal with a DPP four initially. Right. But if you were to but if you were to say have you know been given this drug, uh, whatever you decide, either an SGLT2 or uh, a GLP1, and three months later the, the A1C is now eight, then I, I think it would be a reasonable uh, issue at that point to you know consider a DPP4. You could, you could add a DPP4 at that time, although you only really are going to get maybe a half to you know three quarters of a percent. Um, decrease in A1C, so you still wouldn't get to goal. I think the the benefits to the DPP4 are probably earlier on in the diabetes. And some people have suggested that people who start off with metformin also start off with a SG with a DPP4 as well. I think that's a that's a place for the DPP4. But in my practice, once they get to me, when I'm you know uh, seeing patients is mostly on referral. I mean, we're usually uh, looking at, um, you know, some sort of injectable, particularly, um, you know, an SG, a GLP-1 or, a, or, a, uh, or insulin. And sometimes we're also going to the uh, SGLT-2 if it hasn't been tried at that point in time. So DPP-4s, I think, are something that sort of are, are what I say, are a little bit earlier on in the, in the treatment um, algorithm. I want to bring it back to the case, and I think uh, this will relate to a question that we had from a, a, one of our listeners from Facebook. So let's say we did dual therapy on this guy with an SGLT2, and it's been three months. His A1C, he's on metformin, still at the max dose, 2,000 milligrams a day, and now with the SGLT2 added, his A1C is 8%. At this point, let's say he was willing to do insulin. Is Is there a role for any of these newer agents, would, would you consider Degludec ahead of one of the older long-acting insulins like your Glargine or your Detimer insulin? 
So one of the benefits of Degladec is is that in in this particular gentleman who's a who's a truck driver, if he would be willing to take insulin and we could get all the things done that would allow him to take insulin. The one thing that would be beneficial is, is that Degladec gives you, it's a daily injection, but if you were to, you know, for instance, in his, in his traveling, if he was to miss a day, he would still have the, the long acting effect of the Degladec over a two or three day period. The other benefit of Degladec is, is that it's been shown to have decreased hypoglycemia as of compared to the other insulins, particularly in, in comparison to glargine. And so I think it's, it's beneficial, again, from the perspective of, a, of this gentleman who is a truck driver to have decreased uh, likelihood of hypoglycemia. And glargine and detimer and most of the insulins that, that we're used to using in primary care are U100 insulin, meaning there's 100 units for every one milliliter of insulin given. I believe Degludec might be a U200 insulin, or, or at least it's available as a U200 insulin. And one of the questions from our listener was, can you talk a little bit about how we have to think differently when using a U200 insulin versus a U100 insulin? So that's an excellent question, and it goes, and the answer is you do not have to think about it differently. It's just concentrated in a different volume. Mm-hmm. Right, so it'd be the same number of units, just a different volume. Correct. It's the same number of units, different volume. So just think of it this way. A unit is a unit is a unit in this mm-hmm. regard. I, I think that pretty much answers the question there. Paul, did you have something else? No. For uh, for this patient, so we ended up getting this patient on. He, he was... He opted for, he didn't want to do an injectable, and because of the way that our our payer system worked, I was forced to put him on a DPP-4 as the next line. I couldn't, he wouldn't do an injectable GLP-1, and the SGLT-2, you had to burn through another another drug before you got to that on the formulary. And by the time he came back, his, his A1C had been higher in real life. It had been higher. So we ended up putting him on uh, insulin eventually. And, and he actually, he changed jobs. He was no longer a truck driver. So I was able to get him on insulin and he did, he did okay. So he was on tri- like three, he was on the two oral agents. I kept him on the DPP-4 uh, and, and also on the insulin. And the reason there was he he had very low copays. It wasn't costing him a lot to remain on the DPP-4, and we, we were kind of using it for insulin sparing is at least the way we thought about it. So, I think that's a reasonable approach. So so if I understand, you were to, he was on maximal dose metformin, yes. a DPP-4, and then just a basal insulin. Is that what you had him on? It was, we got up to about 30. I started him on, I think, 15 of Glargine, and he got up to about 30, and he started to drop a little bit, and, and he kind of backed off to 25 or so, and he, he held there, and, and he's been okay. Sounds good. And I, I guess at this point, we usually ask for take-home points. Is there anything you think we missed that we should talk about, Dr. Lefford? If you're talking about the GLP-1s, I think, you know, think about weight loss, think about uh, decreased glycemic control, and potentially for liraglutide, uh, decreased cardiovascular risk. And then SGLT2s, I think, think about the potential as a cardiovascular risk reduction, but also in relationship to uh, the issues that, you know, that patients have to be aware of 
side effect wise, uh, thirst, urination, and uh, fungal infections. And then the insulins, I think long-acting degladec will be interesting because of its decreased hypoglycemic effects and the potential for patients taking it uh, daily, but, but it lasts, you know, almost 42 hours. And so there is the potential for that to, to be beneficial for, for people who, you know, who are less than compliant on a usual basis. So I think those are some of the take-home points, I would say on the new insulins. Great. I think you nailed it. Those are All right. That's a good that's pretty much the a great summary of what we talked about. I might mention that the algorithm that I like to use is certainly the ACE algorithm which you can see on the ACE website or also you can uh, you can download the app. We update it yearly on the website and I think it's a very nice clinically based uh, way of thinking about issues of diabetes, hyperlipidemia, obesity. It's a very comprehensive um, algorithm. I, I, I hope you've looked at it. I, I, I would really recommend it. Yeah. I think we've sung its praises in the past. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Good, good. Yeah, that's uh, whenever, whenever we have new students in the clinic, that's one of the first things I tell them mm-hmm. to download to, you know, if you're seeing a patient with diabetes, you, you pretty much can't get it wrong if you at least are looking at this. Sounds good. Okay, enjoyed it. Take care, you Thanks guys. Thanks so much. All right, take care. Bye. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, mm-hmm. bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You could, find sh- you could find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter summarizing key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And we are committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm still Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. Good night, Paul. Good night. <laughs>